the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode eight. And this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Steve Pincus from TP Produce in Evansville, Wisconsin, where Steve farms with his wife, Beth Kazmar. TP Produce grows about 45 acres of certified organic produce and markets to 500 CSA members, makes nearly year-round sales to stores in Madison and Milwaukee. In fact, the last carrots from, from last fall's harvest are going to be delivered the same week this episode goes live. Steve has incredible employee retention from year to year, with many, many employees having worked on the farm for nearly 20 years. We talk about taking the long view with employee management, cropping systems, and business investments, as well as harvesting and storing lots and lots of carrots. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also sponsored by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest business management texts farming essays, or just a dramatic retelling of the Star Wars saga. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, everybody. I am so pleased to introduce my guest today, Steve Pincus from TP Produce in Evansville, Wisconsin, just south of Madison. I've known Steve since 1993 when he was farming on the outskirts of Madison, and I've always enjoyed his company, his approach to farming and management, and the great vegetables that result. Steve, can you tell us a little bit about TP Produce to get us started and, and how you got to where you are today? Well, sure. It's taken a while. Um, our farm is current. We currently produce about 45 acres of certified organic veggies, uh, most of that vegetables, a little bit of, of strawberries and uh, rhubarb and raspberries. Um, but I started farming in the late 70s, 76, 77, on some borrowed land out in the Driftless area of Wisconsin. And I had no farm background at all. I was really coming from not knowing anything. I was just, my biggest challenge actually was how to live in the country because I grew up in the city in a row house in Philadelphia. So over the years, we've been able to gradually grow the farm, uh, you know, going along with the increasing interest in organics here. We've been located uh, near and marketing to a great hotspot in Madison, Wisconsin, one of the real centers for alternative and organic agriculture. So we've helped build it. We've been part of the community, we've done a lot of education um, of ourselves and helped other people along the way, done a lot of consumer education. And we are now currently running a farm that sells in Madison, Milwaukee, Janesville, uh, not too far away. So about a hundred mile distance from the farm, about half of our income comes from CSA, pack about 500 boxes a week, and the other half comes from practically year-round sales to stores like Willie Street Food Co-op and Outpost Natural Food Co-op in Madison and Milwaukee, and a one Whole Foods store. Uh, we're just now, as we talk at the very end of March, finishing up uh, washing and packing and selling the very last carrots and celeriac from wow. the 2014 crop. The final deliveries will be made this coming week. 
And then and then lettuce will start up again at the end of May. Yeah, the first lettuce is looking fabulous in the greenhouse, ready to transplant. Um, there may be some overlap this week between the All right. the, the carrots being <laughs> the last carrots being delivered and the first lettuce going into the field. Now I know that I and 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 not to get not to get right down in the weeds right away, but I mean I think one of the first questions a lot of people ask is how are you still having carrots to sell in March? Well, we don't have a real sophisticated system, but we simply keep them cold and humid enough. We store them in, in large bins that hold about 750 pounds of carrots. Uh, they go in there right at harvest time, and they get put into coolers. We actually have six coolers around the farm that we use for, for, um, during the winter. We use only three of those in the summer. And we've just kept them in, in good shape by giving keeping them close to freezing and not letting them dry out. I mean, these are above-ground coolers. They're not sophisticated, but we cover the, ba- the, the wooden bins with plastic bags to keep them in pretty good condition. And those big plastic, those big plastic bags that you that. They're like the size of a pallet. Yes, right. Yes, yeah. just a large plastic cover. I mean, some farmers actually line the insides of the wooden boxes with bags and then tie them up at the top to completely enclose them. We don't. We don't do that. That we allow a little more ventilation than that. Okay. Okay. And and when you when you talk about selling year round, you're selling. This is all crops that you harvested in in the fall. You're not growing things in the greenhouse over the winter. No, actually, as a, a older line farmer, we are one of the, we are one of the few farms around here that doesn't use a hoop house. All our growing is done outside. The only um, use for our greenhouses is growing our transplants. But we extend our season in the fall by by using these storage crops, you know, well into the winter and into the early spring the next year. And we're about to have a a gap of about a month where we don't sell anything before the asparagus gets going. Okay. But that must be awfully helpful for keeping employees on. It really makes a difference. It's one reason our farm's been able to grow, that uh, we've been able to keep our best people working part-time in the winter, and we've been able to keep our uh, our produce in front of our customers and on the store shelves, and everybody appreciates it. You know, our, our, our wholesale customers are going big. They're pushing the local, the local issue. You know, we buy from farmers in your neighborhood, and we can keep it. We can allow them to keep that going all winter. That's really great. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you talk about keeping people on part time through the winter. I, I I think this is something that that you're kind of known for uh, regionally, Steve. Is is your your skill or your or your um I I'd even say the wisdom of your approach when it comes to managing employees. Um, and, and I know, I mean, we've talked about this a lot in the past and other circumstances, but you know, you, you're a big believer, I think, in having a plenty of people on the farm, not working people too many hours a week and really trying to have, um, really trying to build that, that crew cohesion on your farm. Yeah. Right from the very beginning, we've never, 
brought anyone on the farm with uh, and, and called them an intern or an apprentice. We've had employees right from the start and we've tried to pay them enough so that they're fairly compensated and if they're working full time so that they can live on it. Uh, partially that was because I never really had a place on the farm for people to stay. And I started off at such a low level of knowledge that it just didn't seem fair to uh, imagine that I could teach anybody anything. I guess folks are learning now, but a lot of people have gone on to from this farm to run their own places. But I still like to keep uh, uh, somewhat of a separation between uh, by, by having people come as employees. I mean, it seems fair to pay them for their time in, uh, in, in that way. That's, that's what works out for us. And I, as we were, as I was thinking about what we we're going to talk about today, I, I came up with this uh, comparison. Every year on our farm, we pay our employees our total payroll with the uh, with the um, additional overhead that we pay for the government programs and unemployment and so on. Uh, equals just about what it costs to buy all the farm equipment that we own. In other words, if I went out to buy the equivalent of farm tools, tractors, rotovators, cultivators, delivery trucks, irrigation equipment, I would spend just what it costs me to pay one year's crew wages. Wow, and that's that's how important that uh, that is to us financially. I mean, it's very nice to have a, a fabulous thirty or forty thousand dollar tractor in great shape, but we have several employees who are making thirty to forty thousand dollars a year here on the farm each year. So keeping things moving well, having the right people on the farm, really pays off. It's it's well, the most important part of of the uh, economics and also the fun of the farm. Well, yeah, and that's that's something that's always interested me. It it does it seems like you're you enjoy having people around. And when I've talked to people that work on your farm, it seems like people really enjoy being there. And that that's that's not something that. Uh, I mean, I, I know from a lot of farms that I work with, and I certainly experienced this on my place, you know, people were happy in, in May, and, and it was all kumbaya, and by August, everybody oh. wanted to kill each other. <laughs> and that doesn't seem to be a TP produce way of doing things. Well, I'm, I'm really glad it isn't, uh, but I, I don't know if I can pinpoint just why. Maybe I've just learned over the years to keep my hat on my head and not throw it at people, metaphorically. Uh, I, one thing I, one thing I tell myself and I tell my employees too, is that, look guys, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. When you make a mistake, well, maybe a hundred dollar mistake and I'm going to make plenty of mistakes, but those are thousand dollar mistakes. So I'm not going to get upset at this. You need to be able to make decisions on your own at the, at the appropriate levels and not worry about whether it's 100% right. Farming isn't 100% business. We, we're not going to get it like a manufacturing plant. You know, we, we, I kind of figure that if we get it 90% right, we're going to have a great year. 
I've no, I don't think I've ever had a year when everything, you know, when I can't look back and say, ah, that crop didn't do well. You know, we have 45 different crops here and every year something or two or three is not going to be up to par. And I, I just can't expect my employees and, and me either to be running at 100 or 100 plus percent every day. That's it, not the way people work. It's not the way the weather and the biology of the farm allows. You really do have to be able to, to I'd almost say, get over it quickly mm. when things go wrong. You know, even if you if you if you get stuck and dwell on it. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of time for that on the farm either. You know, if you, if you, if you have a stumble, if something does go wrong, if you spend hours or days wrapped up in that and being less than as productive as you could be, it's a, well, farming's all about time. And that's just gonna, that has a really bad, I I wanted to say something eloquent, but it has something, it has a really bad effect on the farm. It, It has a bad, and I think it's kind of a tumble down thing when you let those, those emotions and reactions get out of control. Yeah, well, that is part of it. That's part of just being a good manager is just maintaining a steady mood. Um, I, that's, I mean, my wife and I may not be so steady, but when we have issues or things that I want to vent, uh, we can do that together. Um, that's, you know, there's a, a difference between sometimes between what I'm actually feeling and what I actually am putting out to my employees. You know, my job is to, um, it's like the coach on the team, you know, the team may be, have fallen behind, but you, the, the mood is, come on guys, we can do this. Let's, you know, this is, let's just be steady. Let's play our game. We know what we're doing. Let's get back into it. Now, this is a little bit of a hard question, I think, for somebody who's, who's, has that skill and is able to do that. But I just did a couple of lectures out in Vermont about employee management. And this was a question that came up um, in, in two different groups on two different days is at a very practical level. How do you keep your, how do you keep your hat on when, when you feel like throwing it? Um, Part of that's just uh, experience. (laughs) I mean, because that hat came off a lot more 10 and 15 years ago than it does now. And part of it is, having the farm at the point where I'm not really worried about those hundred dollar mistakes. Uh, again, if I go back 15 years or maybe when we had just moved to this farm and things were, were tighter, um, I'd be more concerned about it. But, uh, I think it's part of something you just have to grow into because when you're running a, a business and it's you know the, where the money issues are paramount, then maybe you do have to worry about that a little more. But you still can't expect your employees to live up to some incredible standard of perfection. Most of them are young, they're inexperienced, and management, the quality of employee, it flows directly from the quality of management of what you're telling your employees of the, the level at which you're instructing them and how clear you make your expectations. And if you're on a, as a, on a smaller farm, when we were smaller, I used to work side by side with my people much more often. So I had, we had a chance to learn together and I had a chance to show them things that I've already learned. Now I'm a little more distant. We have 20 people a day working on this farm for much of the season. 
and I have to manage uh, in, a, in a somewhat second hand at this point. But are are well, you do you yeah do you have mid level management on your farm then? We do. We have a very informal structure, but it's clear we have three or right now four people who are our managers, and those people have been working on the farm for eighteen, and I think. 14 or 15 years, and Carrie's been here nine or 10, and John wow. has only been a couple years. So they really understand, and not, not only do they understand, but they helped create this farm. Their personalities are embedded in this farm. So, you know, we get along. The reason they've stayed is because we see things similarly, and I've been able to pay them, you know, a, a good amount of money. They, they've totally earned it. And even these managers are only working four days a week. Uh, that's, whoa, 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 what? Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> one of our keys to keeping people here year after year is that we don't burn them out. And we find that often by the second or third year, if someone keeps coming back, they only want to work four days a week, or maybe they want to take a, a day off every other week because they have, they have personal things to do. Last couple of years, we've had some really fabulous people, but they've been involved in a small or, um, CSA operation with other people, a cooperative group, and they've needed time to get to work on that. So they've been working here four days a week. And even these older employees, um, do it four days, and that's why they can stick around because that balance works for them. They're paid. We, and those are and those are four pretty short days, well, right? Those aren't those aren't farmer days. No, they're essentially eight hour days. We okay. we try and keep it to eight hours of actual work time, so that when people leave, they still have energy and they're they they hit August and they're not worn out yet. And maybe we hit October and we're still not worn out. It's just, wow. It works It works pretty well. Now, those aren't my hours, of course. But and you're the farmer, right? Yeah, That's... I am the farmer. So, you know, the buck stops here. And I take I take a load. But over the last couple of years, I've been hiring people to take more of my load. I've been hiring more skilled uh, farmhands specifically with the idea of taking some of my work and that allows me simply to work less or to give up some of the more physically demanding jobs as I get older. I'm in my sixties and it allows me to do more management too. actual making decisions, researching, walking the farm more, figuring things out and, and making better decisions because I don't have to do all the repair work. I don't have to do all the watering on the weekends and the greenhouses and, and simple jobs like that, that other people are, can do even better than I can do. I'm curious, Steve, as you've had more time to, to spend doing that walking around the farm piece, that actual real intentional management job. Do you, are you finding that the farm is doing better? Yeah, the farm definitely is better. Part of our, our image as we hire these more skilled people and we're paying them much better right from the start, you know, they're not coming in at rookie wages either, is that the farm will actually pay most of what it costs us to have them here, you know, by, by, 
putting more skills into the farm at the tractor level and the management level, we're able to stay ahead of problems. We don't have so many rescue jobs on weeds particularly. We're able to do a little more spraying where needed to deal with diseases proactively. And then the, in some years, not always, but it seems to more than pay for itself. If I'm paying somebody $30,000 a year to be here on that somewhat higher level, they may earn me back 20000 of that just, just right. in profits from improved production. So that makes them right. look pretty cheap. That makes them look like a good investment. Yeah, that's, a really that's, good that, deal. that's called ROI yeah, right there. Yeah. You know? And, and, and now you mentioned 20 people on the farm, um, in addition to, in addition to yourself and Beth. So that's, I mean, that puts you at, um, I mean, about, about, uh, two acres per person, um, which I think is a pretty, which is kind of actually a, a pretty standard number. You must be getting a lot out of your employees during the time that they're there. Well, we try to, um, we figure, um, we're putting about, we're hiring about 450 hours per actual production acre. And that includes drivers, delivery, and you know, all the, all the, um, employee time. And that's, you know, pretty, that's fairly substantial, but of course we're getting back $20,000 roughly per acre, um, you know, at some at CSA prices, some at wholesale or direct wholesale prices. And I feel like we can get a lot out of our employees because they've been well organized. And especially the last few years, we've had a really stable crew for a while. And then last year was particularly great because we only brought in maybe, I think, three new people out of that 20. So everybody really knew what they were doing. And it gave me a chance to step back and do do some of that larger managing. Now, this year is a little different. We have a, a lot more new folks, many of our three, four, five-year vets have moved on to other exciting farming projects around the country. But uh, you know, I think we have enough experience here to bring these new people up to speed fairly quickly. And I think when you get into having that that kind of retention rate on your employees, suddenly you're not having to deal with these questions of of training, of of having to dismiss people who aren't working out. I mean, you've you've got people who've already... You already know what you know what you're getting into every year, and so does everybody who's coming back on the farm. Yes, yes, they do. I mean, we can sit down in a, at the end of the year. Well, maybe we have our crew party in early December, and you know, talk about well, what's what's coming up. What are what are our goals in general for the for the coming year? And you know, folks already know the basics. You know, even one year under their belt makes a huge difference. Any anybody who comes back for a second year is worth quite a bit more than they were the first. Yeah. Now my, my memory is too, that you, you do other things to make things easier for your employees. I mean, Right, you guys run a bus to Madison. Well, we own a minivan, a Honda van, and okay. and we we um, you know so seven people a day come from Madison to the farm, which is about uh, a thirty-five minute drive. Uh, you know, for free, we we cover that that expense because many of our best people over the years don't have cars, and they don't want to own cars or. They don't, they don't have a car that they can trust, maybe. So 
Well, that that <laughs> be, be, you know you know that phase of life. I know I know that story. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, I've, I've been there yeah. uh, as a farm worker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know we can take care of that for them, and um, uh, we also subsidize carpooling. That those seven people from Madison is isn't enough, but there's at least one other car a day coming. We always make sure we hire some enough people with cars. But if we have enough, then no one has to drive more than one or possibly two days a week, and we subsidize those carpools. You know, we pay for the some most of the expense of getting getting out here. So that helps a lot. It's, you know, that's part of our overhead that seems to really pay off in, in widening the pool of people that we can hire. I just think it's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to, to think about taking that kind of a focus on essentially employee happiness, employee satisfaction uh, as, as really an investment strategy. I think so often we are stuck in that mode of I'm, I want to hire somebody and maybe I'm going to do an internship because I'm going to, or I'm going to hire an intern because that allows me to save some money. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like saving money on employees is, is your, is your shtick at all. No, not really. Um, we've always tried to pay kind of at the upper end of the, you know, the, local scale where, you know, when I could, and I, I think we could right from the start, but, um, I've been focused on the business and, and focused on the satisfaction of employees and customers and putting something together that was going to last. And I, you know, I think at this point, you know, we're, we're pretty stable and, and generally we're, you know, we're making enough money. So that is not the big issue for us. It's, uh, you know, we, we want to pass on the success of the business to the people who are helping. Folks who are here for one year, they're getting paid, you know, pretty modestly, uh, especially compared to, to some jobs in Madison, which is, which is right. not, uh, you know, a low-pay city. But, again, when they come back for that second year, they get a pretty substantial raise because it really reflects how much more valuable they are when they return. I think this – the. I mean, it, it, I might characterize this as taking a long view, uh, you know, with, with even making a decision with how much we're going to pay a first year employee and how we're going to structure that employee's work, that really what you're doing is you're not just looking at how do I, how am I getting the carrots weeded, but how am I going to get the carrots weeded next year and, and also, you know, get rid, be able to, to offload watering in the greenhouse on the weekends to somebody else. Yes, you know, and that, yes. that kind of comes back to how you treat that first year employee. And that seems like something that you've done in a lot of areas of the farm, Steve. I, I saw on your website, you guys have just installed a, a photovoltaic system, yeah. which is, of course, kind of a long view sort of an enterprise. Yes, it is. Um, what, what prompted you to do that? Well, it was, it was mostly that long view. It was that feeling that um, we have been fortunate enough to benefit from the growth of organics, that our customers have been great. And, you know, we have some money in the bank. And uh, at the moment, money in the bank is not doing anything. It's not working in any way for us. And we felt that this would be a way to really live out um, the ideals and the 
values uh, that we have and our, I think our customers and employees have too. And this is part of why they're supporting us for the long haul. They're not just looking at one year's vegetables. They're looking at the health of the land, the health of the farmers and crew, and you know, a, a, being involved with a system that supports uh, a longer outlook. And and I think now your your system's tied into the utility company still. You're not doing all of the power for the farm this way with those with those six coolers running. No, no, that wouldn't be practical at all. No, it, it's a very typical system that is hooked into the main grid uh, at this time of year, probably today, on a very sunny day where we're not using much electricity. The coolers are, um, uh, we're down to one cooler with those carrots in there. We're, we're pumping a fair amount of electricity back out into the grid. But when we start start, really start things up in the summer, even though we're, producing a little more power during those long summer days, we're going to be buying still quite a bit. Over the year, it looks like this system will produce about half the electricity that we use on the farm. That's great. It, I think That's it's pretty great. great. It's, it's been running now for just about a month, and it's been an unusually sunny, brilliant, and cold month, which are ideal conditions for for making power. So it's really gotten off to a great start. Um, you know, we've of course there there are some uh, uh, tax credits and advantages that will help pay for this. Um, we may receive some grants, but we're not sure. We went ahead and paid for it and set it up anyway. And the, you know, if the grants don't come, then it'll, you know, the payback period will be longer. But with the grants, they, uh, even if we get half of what we'd hoped for, it looks real good. It looks like our break-even point is somewhere out about 12 years out. And then all the electricity from then on is essentially free, you know, that we will, you know, pay it up or just kind of paying ahead on this. Well, and that idea of paying ahead, I remember when I talked to you uh, during the, you know, we had the, we had that big drought in two, it was 2012, I think here yep. um, that, that kind of, you know, it was, it was brutal all over the Midwest. And I, I was farming that year still. And um, I remember talking to a lot of farmers that year and you could hear the, you could hear how drawn out they were. You know, they, it, it, there, there wasn't a lot left in August of that year. And I, and I remember, um, remember a conversation that you and I had and you, you, you made the comment you were tired, but you weren't worn out. You know, you were tired, but you knew you were going to make it to the end of the year. And I had a lot of farmers that I was talking to who were just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't clear that they were, going to make it through in any kind of a sustainable way. And one of the things we talked about there was, um, was kind of that, that priority of investment and, and looking for things that are going to, are going to pay back. And it seems like that's something you've done all along with your infrastructure and with, with your equipment. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, building the farm gradually, of course, we really had to be practical. I mean, we've tried to put in every year about six to eight percent of our total gross sales um, reinvested back into the farm. I mean, sometimes that's the structure, like a new greenhouse, or maybe it's a new roof on the, on our, our large barn that we use um, pretty fully. And sometimes it's in a you know a tractor or piece of, of field equipment. 
and uh, or a delivery truck, but making that investment's been really important in, in building things up, you know, and getting to, getting to the point where we can handle the ups and downs. Because it gives us an infrastructure that's pretty resilient. I mean, okay, resilience. Number one, it's got to be the soil. I mean, your soil has to be quite good. I think if we had had that drought the first or second year we were on this farm, we would have had a lot more trouble because the soil just wouldn't have been in shape. You know, we moved here in 2002. That was our first year on this farm. And... Um, you know, luckily, we'd had 10 years under our belt to improve the soil, so that held up. Right. And the, one of the first investments we made in the farm was for an irrigation well. Uh, we're on sandy loam soils, and we'd, we'd never farmed these soil, sorts of soils before. But it became pretty clear just um, with, with this one-year transition period we had before we started growing produce, how different these soils were, how much lighter textured, and how much uh, more water they were going to need. So that irrigation, you know, full-scale, 200 gallons a minute, irrigation system was uh, absolutely essential and you know by the time that heavy drought came we you know we had the equipment we had it set up so that given you know a pretty much 24 hour a day effort to keep things going we were able to pull it off and and give our crops enough water it was uh, turned out to be actually a very profitable year, but it was exhausting by the time we hit the end. Chris, <laughs> yeah. I was I was so tired in December. But I do I do remember talking to the the folks that had the irrigation, who had the infrastructure when that when that weather hit. Actually, found the well. I think a lot of people learned why we do vegetable production in California in this country. Yeah, you know, because it's when you, you know, if you've got the irrigation water, um, it actually gets a lot easier. Yes. Than in a dry year. Yes, the plants stayed healthy. The quality for most things was terrific. Well, not not cool season crops so much, but our summer crops did phenomenally well, and it was up to that point our most profitable year ever. You know, we worked. Wow. We worked for it, and my crew really sweated. I mean, it was not. I don't look back on it as a fun year, but it worked out, and people ate well. Our CSA boxes were full, and the store shelves had our produce on there. Now, you mentioned having that that one year of transition uh, between. So you had you had a farm out in in Fitchburg, right? Yep, yep. Just out it, which is maybe five miles from downtown Madison. Um, that's about right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and so, and, and then you bought this new piece of ground. Why did you decide to move? Well, that farm near Madison was rented. And although it was a, a really nice, fertile, productive piece of ground that had been um, farmed as a U-Pick farm. So it had some equipment, it had an irrigation system, even, even better than what we have here, actually. Um, the owners wanted to sell it and, and they were, you know, they were looking at $40,000 an acre, we weren't going to buy that. And besides, we right. were outgrowing it. That, that farm was about 20 acres, and we were bursting at the seams at that point. We we had put in very little infrastructure, you know, the, like 
very many, not many renters would would actually build buildings on on somebody else's farm. We weren't right. about to do that, so we didn't have enough indoor space. We didn't have cooler space. We were we were lacking a lot there. And you know, we we had a good future. We had a business that was really growing and thriving at that point. So when we found this farm, we were able to stay growing on that rented land for one year while we while we cover cropped at least part of this farm. We owned this farm for for a year and we had improvements to make too. Um, our current farm was Amish owned and it needed electricity. It needed a fair oh, wow. <laughs> it, it needed some improvements. We weren't we weren't ready to move in uh, the day they moved out. We could we couldn't have done that. So it did, it did give us somewhat of a jump and it really helped us to kind of learn what we had here. You know, at least they had one more year of trying to, of figuring out, of doing some disking and, you know, working the fields and planting with uh, some equipment that, that we had brought over to this farm. Steve, I'm going to break here for a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Vermont compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some really great transplants with it. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more input substitution, more and more simplification, Vermont compost potting soils remain a stalwart reminder of what organic really means. The Fort V potting soil that Vermont compost makes is kind of like poetry that you can use to grow the best transplants possible. The ingredient list for the compost alone, and that's 70 percent of the potting soil right there i mean this is this is the basis for an organic potting blend is a study in the diversity that organic agriculture rests on with cattle equine and poultry manures hay spoiled crops food scraps peat moss and mature compost all added back in and the potting soil itself is made up of a veritable symphony of ingredients i can't, i don't have enough time to even go over the entire list here but it includes granite and basalt meals you know the native rocks for the northeast that are aged in the compost to actually promote the release of nutrients before they're bad added back into the into the potting mix itself and and then they even throw in kelp for the micronutrients and and even as carl hammer the the founder of of uh of vermont compost says a little bit of the smell of the sea this is a beautiful product and it grows beautiful plants vermontcompost.com the Farmer to Farmer podcast is also sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial. I'm an audio junkie from way back, and I've been downloading books from Audible for years. I think that the spoken word, whether it's a podcast or an audiobook or workshop recordings from a conference, really has an incredible power. Listening to great content is a way to really get information into your head, and I think it combines some of the best aspects of focused attention and subliminal messaging. And it's so easy now that almost everybody has an eye something or an Android device. Audible has over 100,000 titles that you can choose from, everything from Star Wars dramatizations to the latest business books. Um, just go to audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer to get your free download. Moving, I mean, moving a farm, uh, what was what was that like? It was a huge effort. Uh, you know, we had a, a moderate amount of equipment. It, uh, back on that rented farm, we had we knew that at some point we were going to leave that place for a bigger farm. So we'd been accumulating equipment that was more than we needed for 20 acres. And so when when we came to this place, we had we had enough. We didn't have to buy much more in order to uh, to make it work. But we were incredibly lucky. The winter that we moved 
was unusually warm and dry. And it made life so much easier. I mean, if we had had even normal snowfall or normal cold weather, we would have had much, much more trouble. But, we, you know, we got the help of uh, equipment uh, dealers and, and their flatbed trucks, and they moved things here. And we moved our household, and suddenly we were on our new farm. <laughs> it wasn't so sudden, but it was – it was. Uh, a real change when we were still thinking about the old farm and the new farm. And, you know, five, six years down the road, the new farm wasn't really the new farm anymore. It was just the farm. Right. And right. Was, was that the same time that you stopped doing the Madison farmer's market? We had been at that market um, since 1977 and I was, it was, I was getting worn out on it. Um, I, I always enjoyed, Enjoyed being there, and the camaraderie was fabulous. And you know, getting off the farm and the socializing, I loved it. But setting up, breaking down, uh, the intense effort—I I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't figure out a way to like to hang in the background and let other people do the work there. I just was at my—I was at my most intense on that Saturday morning, and I just felt like I wasn't. Uh, it was taking me longer and longer to recover. I wasn't even feeling back to normal until Tuesday after the market anymore. So once our youngest son was born in uh, 2002, uh, he, Beth said, let's start a CSA. CSA was a really going movement here in the Madison area. Um, we, we had a terrific uh, CSA coalition, a cooperative group that helped farmers get going and that helped you know, we marketed together and advertised together and we just kind of jumped into that and joined what was already was already happening and dropped out of the market in the first year the the CSA numbers almost earned back as much as we were making a market. And by the second year, we had surpassed the, our biggest farmer's market year ever. And at this point, you know, it's a major essential part of the farm. And that's still a marketplace that's going strong for you guys. Oh, the CSA. It is. Things have changed. Um, there may be, it could be that um, the market is it's closer to being filled up here in Madison. That's partially because we've been at it for so long. Maybe it's somewhat lost its uh, uh, hipness. I'm not, I'm not sure of that, but there are definitely more farms. A lot of it is because there are just more farms offering more shares and more farmers who are getting really good at it. So the difference between our, you know, more mature, experienced farm and some of the farms that were just startups, you know, six or eight years ago, is pretty small. They're doing really excellent job, and in some ways, they may maybe even more focused on their CSA customers than we can be at our large size. So it's, uh, you know, it's hanging in there. But we also sell in Milwaukee. About nearly half our CSA members are in Milwaukee or Janesville or, or our local farm area. Oh, okay. It's, it's, so not you're not just reliant on that that one market in Madison. No, no, not at all. No, we've always not always, but for the past 15 years, we've been selling to Milwaukee, which is nearly 100 miles away. 
It's because of my ties with the Outpost Food Co-ops there. Um, back in 1970, I actually helped start that store. I was I managed it for a couple years and was really, really involved. And that's actually what kind of propelled me or, or pointed me into farming. But when we, as our farm grew and we started to have enough produce in, um, in the late 90s, uh, we started shipping into Milwaukee. We had somebody else who was was could take it for us at first, and then as the amount grew, we started running our own trucks, and now it's it's a regular part of our route, and we actually sell more than half our wholesale sales are done in the Milwaukee area. Really? Yeah, that's, as well as about half our CSA members. That's interesting because I always think of you guys as being a, a very Madison-oriented farm, but clearly that's been something that shifted. Do you is that a is that a shift that you feel? good about from a business standpoint is it is it is it good to have to have the two different markets in your perspective yeah i think it's terrific um, uh, i mean you're dealing with really different groups of people in in those two places um one one huge difference with csa is that many of our Madison CSA members receive a rebate of up to $200 a year from their HMOs, from their uh, uh, health insurers, you know, as part of a wellness rebate. And none of our Milwaukee members do. It's something that's only available in in the Madison area, at at least right now. And if that rebate um, would ever uh, disappear, <laughs> and it actually is starting to fade. Um, it you know ha- being uh, not depending so much on that, not uh, you know, having customers who aren't used to it will will help. And then the economics of the two cities are are just different. Um, we sell to those four, outpost uh, natural food co-op, which just not too long ago, I think maybe ten years ago, had only one store in Milwaukee. Now has four in Milwaukee and and a couple suburbs. And you know because they're spread out so widely, it just disperses the the uh, our, our customers. I mean, it gives us access to a whole different groups of customers customers that we just wouldn't reach if we stepped only with Madison. When you decided to expand your retail sales with this, with the CSA into Milwaukee, how did you go about establishing <laughs> drop sites for your boxes and, and, and getting really building that customer base from, from scratch in a, in a town that wasn't, uh, that isn't as CSA oriented yeah. as Madison. Well, that's a really good question. We kind of informally duplicated the structure of that we had used used in Madison, or that we had uh, you know gotten involved with in Madison, of holding open house. Um, getting some free advertising using the good graces of nonprofit organization in Milwaukee. That was the Urban Ecology Center. It's a group that's uh, involved with teaching kids about nature and about about cycles of life, uh, you know, off the city streets. And they have been great. You know, we we uh, relied on a, a person or two there who was enthused about it and who was willing to do organizing among local farmers. And we just got the word out that, you know, who's interested. There had been um, a couple CSA farms operating in Milwaukee. We certainly weren't the first. Pete Seeley, particularly at Springdale, um, had been uh, running a CSA in Milwaukee for uh, quite a while and, um, you know, had done a, a lot of work, but pretty much all on his own. So 
that first open house, <laughs> there were there were actually more farmers there than potential CSA members. Oh, you came, no. came in the door. <laughs> by the third or fourth year, the numbers were really up. It got a lot more exciting. You know, we didn't start out. It was not a big deal at first for us. And actually, we started out using the Outpost store as a you know, drop-off pickup site for us, um, and that you know that gave us. We were. It didn't take any extra effort. We were driving there anyway to drop off our wholesale orders, and if we only had five boxes, well, that's okay. It made it worth it. Right. So we were right. able to start off slowly. And the, uh, the last few years, the open houses have brought in like 900 people, 1,100 people. Um, yeah, it's, it's really been a, a major event for the, uh, at the Urban Ecology Center. So things have grown, and it's, it's just due to people's interest in eating well and uh, you know, being, you know, the fact that farmers like us and small farmers doing these things are newsworthy. Right? You, need, you just need some good friends in the right media. It really helps right. out. And especially if you're doing it in a place where it hasn't been done before, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of room for building some excitement about that. Yes. Yes. It, it, it's actually worked. I mean, Milwaukee is a much larger metropolitan area than Madison. So the potential seems phenomenal, but, of course, the Madison just has some special spark, and that's it's, made it it's work. That, it's that little bit of the West Coast that's in the center of Wisconsin. <laughs> I think that's that's kind of Madison, right? It's something like that. Well, it's just one of the, one of those hot spots that uh, has really worked. You know, that allowed so many of us to make a life and a, and a living doing this thing. Now, when you drop off CSA shares now in Milwaukee and in Madison, are you are you working with the stores still to to host your drop sites, or is that something you're putting that in a member's garage and and walking away from it? How does that work? Well, we're doing both. Your farm? Actually, in Madison, um, we have all our drop sites are in garages. There are private houses, uh, but in Milwaukee, we're still using the four outpost natural food stores. But, and also we have one in a business that's for employees only there in downtown Milwaukee. And we have three, one, two, I think three, um, or maybe it's just two actually, in, um, in garages and in members' homes. So it's a, it's a mixture. It's a mix that works out really well for us. That's that's It's really nice to have that kind of support from your partners. And I think that's something that's, that oftentimes we find in in the the natural foods co-ops that isn't necessarily existing when you start selling into some of the larger you know the rainbows and the high V's and the other grocery store chains that they're just not they're they're more focused on how to make money off of it rather than how to create a partnership in the local foods movement. Yeah, I, I, you're definitely right there. Um, we've been lucky to have these co-ops as partners. I mean, they really were cooperative together um, when it comes to setting prices, when it comes to figuring out what specials they want to run. You know, I mean, I'm into it. They, they've been doing great. I, I have, these foods co-ops have been essential to the whole movement here. They, they're really necessary. And whatever other ups and downs there may be, you know, these stores are going to feed a lot of people. You know, they're they're creative and they're doing a great job of promoting organics and letting people know why this matters. 
Well, and they don't, they don't always get so hung up on things like having to have the same brand of carrots on their shelves 12 months of the year. Right. And they're not so hung up on looks and things being really uniform and size graded. Uh, you know, our, our quality's improved enormously, but you know, over, if I look back 20 years, it's incredible. The things that we used to send to stores, um, I think a fair amount wouldn't make it these days, but we've gotten to be a lot better farmers. I mean, everybody has. I think every I think the bar's a lot higher now. I've uh, I've kind of wondered if I if I was starting farming now, how much more difficult that would be, just because of of where the bar is uh, compared to where it was. I started farming on my own in 1999, um, and you know you you started that much that much earlier. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really I think there's been a big shift in what the what customers and stores are expecting. Yeah, that is definitely true. Um, I'm not sure if a new farmer would find it easier or harder to meet those standards. Um, sometimes when when you see what can be done and you can talk as a new farmer and you can learn and, at conferences and workshops and field days and you can talk to farmers about how they get that quality, it, it, you may be able to get up to those standards fairly quickly. You know, there's, there's a lot more infrastructure and uh, supports out there in, in terms of information and ways of getting to that information and products and materials and inputs to the farm that were really hard to put together or just didn't exist at all 20 years ago. So I think those standards, I think it's somewhat easier for a new farmer right now to, to get good at it, to get a lot better at it quickly. When you talk about those things that are um, that are available now for farmers that that weren't available before, it, it does remind me. I think you've always been a little bit of an innovator when it comes to the the equipment that you use on your farm. Um, I mean, I remember I remember coming to your farm in 1993, and you had a you had a Gravely walking tractor that was kind of the equivalent of a BCS that had a wiggle hoe on the back of it. Oh, I remember yeah. you had you had this crazy tractor that was like a it was kind of like a G except that except that the structure went up and over the operator, Yep. you know, where the, where the Alice Chalmers G still has that, that shaft down the middle. This one actually went up and over. Um, can you talk about, I mean, obviously at 45 acres, equipment's a, a big deal yeah. on your operation. Yeah. Well, equipment is a fun part of the operation and, you know, putting things together and hunting them up uh, wherever you can find it has yeah, it's been fun. It's been enjoyable putting together a line of uh, equipment that works and, and gets the job done. And, you know, older tractors, I mean, things like older small farm malls are still fabulous for cultivating. Uh, you know, I don't think... Uh, Farms should rely on a 40- or 50-year-old tractor as their main main piece of equipment and, uh, for any longer than they have to. But, you know, if you, we have a mix of, of, you know, newer tractors and, and equipment. I mean, we just... We just brought in and got a brand new rotivator yesterday delivered. Wow. And we're um, bringing in a carrot harvester from Europe along with uh, Noah Engel. Uh, oh, really? So you're, are you graduating beyond the, um, beyond the 60 year old FMC yeah. Scott Biner harvester? I am. I am. We'll talk a little more about that one later, okay. but, okay. but <laughs> yes, I mean, and that's just part of the progression from what works and what I can afford to what works better. 
and what I can still afford. I still have to pay, pay attention to that. But you know, the numbers have changed about how much um, I can actually spend on something right now. Um, we're we're in a position right now where, you know, here again, I'm in, you know, in my sixties, how much longer am I going to farm? Uh, I want to have equipment that is really reliable, that does a terrific job. Um, and you know, that does the job I expect without really needing to fool around with it. Um, anything I buy, new right now or close to new, um, I will have for the rest of my farming life for sure. Right. And that's a pretty good feeling that it's like, okay, fine. This is a final decision. You know, we'll keep, we don't have to, uh, keep playing with something that's old. I can pass the older equipment on to a younger farmer who, who, for whom it might be very appropriate. Um, we're trying to get equipment that does not have quirks, that is, is safe, speaks so that um, employees can use it without having to fool around, that they can concentrate on doing the job rather than concentrating on keeping the equipment going. That's a really big deal once we start putting employees Onto onto this equipment and uh, uh, and getting them to do some of that work that I had been doing previously, it has to it just has to be in better shape than if only I were using it. And, and safety is really essential. So that almost always means newer equipment is safer. And you know, it has the shields. It's it's designed with uh, safety in mind. And often, and it's you know it's not going to uh, come apart. So you know we're, we're we think about that as we keep adding or replacing equipment. We're not really adding much anymore. We've pretty we're we're just trying to take an older piece that has been you know wearing down or unreliable or not quite doing the job right and replacing it with something that will do it do it better. Yeah. Well, and that just, I mean, that's, that seems like an important investment in your, um, in your productive capacity. Again, like you said, not having to, not having to fuss with stuff during the season. Yes. Yes. I mean, one of our goals, the ideal is that everything be in good enough shape by the time we hit the season so that it doesn't break. And honestly, we have an awful lot of equipment that we don't use heavily. And we have, we have about right now about eight active tractors on the farm and there's only two of them that get more than about a hundred hours of use a year. Well, a hundred hours isn't very much for a, for a farm tractor. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we just take care of them and they tend to just keep on going. Well, and I think, I think that, that making that effort to care for the equipment and, and, and get it ready before the season starts. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I think that's just such a, that's such a key element. Do you guys have a heated shop that you're, that you're working in over the winter? Well, we do now, actually, we just really fixed it up a couple years ago and put a heater in there and it still won't stay all that warm during the coldest days. But you know, when it's 20 out, we can, we can work in there comfortably enough. It's, it's not, you know, not a fancy building, uh, but we can get uh, just about every piece of equipment in there. You know, one one piece at a time, and and work it over. So we make use of our winters 
and uh, yeah, it's not something we do every day. But how how did you do it before you had a heated shop? I mean, this was this was something I struggled with uh, as a beginning farmer, not having a place to pull things in and 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 stay warm. Well, we would we would um, get started about this time of year. Here we are, you know, the last few days of March. It's like, oh, it's getting okay. warmer. It's time to work on equipment. You know, okay, we can start up all the tractors, get them out of the tractor shed, and start working in there, you know, the big unheated shed. You know, pull them out in the sunlight and, and get, you know, start working on these lists we made. Because... You, you, know, you mentioned the list that you made. Yes. So as you're going through the year, finding out things that, you know, oh, we need to we need to fix this on the FMC root harvester. Yeah, right, right, exactly. You know, get these um, at the sometime during the winter, you know, we'll try and go over each piece of equipment uh, mentally, at least if not you know, physically next to it and talk about, hey, remember this, you know, let's look at it. And what was going on with that with that piece? Is there something leaking? I mean, sometimes it's pretty obvious. Um, get to the end of the year, yeah. Look, here's remember the oils started coming out of here back in August, and we never got a chance to fix it. So let's fix this drip over the winter. Uh, let's fix this power steering cylinder. Uh, this, you know, the, there's things that are small enough that during the season you just live with them. But if you can get to them in the winter, much better. And you start the season with all those small aches and pains kind of worked out. And a new set will come along. But, yes. <laughs> but if they're, if they're yeah. that small, then you can, you can just go through the busy times and put up with it. I, I like that idea of having that, that time to sit down over the winter and, and kind of sort out all of the the aches and pains yeah. from the summer and go, you know, what, what do we need to fix when it's time to, when, when the weather's conducive to actually getting out there and fixing it? Yes. Right. Sometimes they don't take too long, but when you're, when you're busy on the day you're going to transplant is the day you want to be repairing the broken springs on the transplanter. Right. Right. Well, I think this, this is a good segue into the, into the, uh, the, uh, the new thing that we're doing with the show, which is asking, you know, asking all of our guests kind of the same three questions at the end of the show. Yeah. Um, and, and unlike my last episode, I actually did remember to tell the guest in advance that we were going to do this. So I've kind of, I've given Steve a little bit of a heads up, but I mean, of, of, are we talking about equipment? I mean, what, what is your favorite farm tool? If you, if you, you know, what, what, what one thing do you feel like makes that really big difference in your life? Well, you mentioned it. It is that 1954 FMC one row root harvester. It's a carrot and beet harvester that we use also for parsnips and turnips, some winter radish. And um, it has been an incredibly valuable tool. And in fact, it's shaped that whole winter season for us because we can harvest you know, tens of thousands, I mean, well over 100,000 pounds of roots, somewhere around 150,000 this past uh, fall, uh, wow. and get them stored away pretty quickly and efficiently. Now, this thing is 60 years old, yet 
and when I bought it about 15 years ago, I paid $500 for it direct from the farmer. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Prices have gone up some. That was a quite a good deal then, but even then the going rate was might have only been two or three thousand. Um, but uh, that would have still been a bargain because that machine has harvested over a million dollars worth of root crops for us that we've been able to to sell over the years. You know, we use it in the summer for summer carrots and, and beet roots, and it's just been a fabulous tool and actually has been totally reliable, you know, with some maintenance like you would give to an older piece of equipment, but it's never really failed on the job. So um, I did mention that we are replacing it, though, with a much newer, much fancier tractor-mounted European-made harvester that um, is will uh, when it gets here soon, and when we set it up, will be the most complex piece of equipment on the farm. And we're doing that because I carrots are a really important crop to us. These root crops mean a lot. And also I want the the pleasure of operating a, a nicer piece of equipment. And I, yes. think, <laughs> I think we'll be able to harvest um, much more quickly and with a lot less physical effort using the, this new harvester. And as not only I, but our, my whole crew gets older, being out there in early November, racing the coming snowstorm with a 60 year old piece of equipment isn't always as much fun as it used to be. So I'm hoping this will, <laughs> this will do a pretty good job for us. And, and, and the, and, and again, just like the FMC, it's going to pick it up, chop the tops off, drop it in a bin for you. Yes. This will, yes, yeah. this will carry the bins along with it or unload the bins at the end of the row all by itself. And you know, the, the, tractor operator has incredible control over this newer machine and the older machine is, you know, it's, it's a tow behind unit. You've got to have somebody drive it actually on the machine, doing the steering and controlling how fast the conveyor belt's working. Well, right on the new, yeah, on the new machine, that's all done from the tractor seat. It's all done from the tractor yeah, seat. The, wow. The folks riding are doing some sorting and, and, uh, you know, the tractor operator is guiding the, the machine down the row. So. Well, and I think it actually something that speaks to just the maturity, not only of your farm, but of where we've gone in the in the local food movement now, because you couldn't that's not something when you bought that that Scott Viner, that FMC, that's that's not something that you could have supported, even if you'd have, even if you'd have had the capital back then. There's no way that you would have gotten the you didn't you wouldn't have had the volume of sales even potentially. Yes. I think on that. Yes, you're right. I mean, any any crop, of course, you know, the whole succession of of uh tools and, and uh, critical points, you know, we're planting, I mean, we're able to, these days we have tools for making great seed beds and we have an excellent seeder and, you know, we still do an awful lot of hand weaving on carrots, but harvesting is one of the critical times. I mean, if we can't get the harvest done quickly and efficiently during, uh, during sometimes some pretty rough weather, then all the other effort up to that point will just have been wasted. So it seems like at this point, that is our bottleneck with the older harvester as much as, so I, as I have loved that machine. 
I'm curious, are you going to hang on to your older harvester as a backup? Yes. Yes, I will. Certainly for a year or more as I get to learn the new one. But we've got that older harvester set up so um, it pulls behind the tractor in such a way that we can actually pluck out rows from the middle of the field. We, We don't have to work from the outside in with that harvester so we can we can plant say a field of uh, say three beds of carrots and then go a couple beds of beets and we can go into the middle of the field if we want to say in midsummer and take out those beets without having to have already cleared the carrots out beforehand and i don't think this new machine will be able to do that oh okay those those little funny um the quirks of your own farm and the way that your own operation works, I think is a really important thing to think about when you're getting new equipment. Yeah. You know, when you're, yep. Yes, it is. I mean, we we're like so many farms. I think of our scale We're in some ways we're a pretty big farm and that's where we could use this new harvester when we're harvesting like four acres of carrots and within a couple weeks for storage. But then in the summertime, well, maybe we just want to take out, you know, you know, two long rows of carrots just for that week's CSA and then leave, right. leave the rest grow. We don't want to go in and take the whole field at once. Which is really what those harvesters are designed to do. It is as a whole field harvester. Yes. Because I think that's that's the way it's anticipated that that machine's going to be used. Yeah, yes. So, right. To work from the outside uh, edges of a, of a uniform field and just work your, work your way right to the middle. So how about um, how about resources, Steve? What's when when you've got a question, when you need to when you need to solve a problem, or when yeah. you're running into something new? Where where do you turn? Well, I try and talk to other farmers, uh, you know, farmers who are operating on my scale, and that would be like Dave Perkins or Richard DeWild out here, even uh, Josh and Noah Engel actually have been you know, great resources. Um, that would be number one. I mean, in a general sense, what really, really helps are our conferences, like the, the Moses Conference that's held in La Crosse each year. Um, you know, that's a chance to bump into people and see folks from other parts of our region that I don't get to talk to all that often and, and compare and talk about things that we see and things we see coming up. I mean, you know, that's out in the hallways and you know, the actual sessions are useful too. It was something when I, when, and I used to run the work, you, as you know, I used to run the workshops for that conference for years and years. What we, we ran some numbers one year and I found out that, that if you took, if, if you looked at how many people were actually in the workshops, it was typically less than half of the people that were in the conference hall yeah. at any given time. Yeah. You know, I think it really speaks to the importance of those, those other interactions. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. It's not just about going for the sessions. It's about going for the people. Definitely. It means a lot. The trade show at that conference and, and other conferences that I go to are incredibly helpful. You know, if, if you're ordering seeds and you simply, you know, phone in your order and you talk to somebody on the other end, you can get some, additional information, but at a trade show where you can really talk to the seed salespeople who know the detail, they know so much more detail than you might ever imagine without really sitting down with them. 
the, the, the amount that they can tell you is incredible. And, and equipment too. I mean, last year or, or the 2014 Moses conference, um, is folks bought the cultivators from Germany cult, um, brand cultivators that were just so eye-openingly different. And it was just what I was looking for. And that's the only, only way to know to see this is to actually be there. I'm curious, did you end up picking up a set of those? Cause I, I certainly um, spent far too much time ogling those, those <laughs> cultivators. Yes, I did. Yes. I bought a set of these very small, fine, uh, Cultivators, um, they called it the duos. Um, we brought a three-row setup that we mounted on a, a Farmall Super C, and they've done a, did a very nice job on you know the the first and second cultivations of small direct-seeded crops, things like carrots or spinach or beets. Um, they you know with the cutaway discs, they can work very close to the row, and you know when they're mounted in front of you, you've got good, really good control. Yeah. They, they have lived up to their promise. I will find, um, I'll make sure we've got that resource listed in our show notes okay. so that folks, you know, when they're, when they're dry, when they're out on their tractors, don't need to be trying to write this thing down. Yeah. So we'll get that in the, get a link to that. And so, um, and then the, the last question I've got for you here is if you, if you could go back and, and tell your beginning farmer self something that your beginning farmer self obviously didn't know, uh, what would you what would you go back and tell him? So I I would tell him to go work on a farm on a, a successful operating farm for a couple of years or more, and and learn by doing it. I never did that. I mean I'm you know I'm one of those farms where people come now to learn uh, about uh, about farming before they launch into it on their own, and. Um, Although there may not have been many certified organic farms around, well, there really weren't back then. We're talking about mid-70s. Um, I, I would have been further ahead. I would have had much more of a vision of where I was going if I just had worked on a, a diversified farm, you know, a, a, a farm that was selling at a farm, at farmer's markets or had their own farm stand um, somewhere in Wisconsin. And... But I didn't, and I had to learn it all the, all the hard way. Now, I, I just I, I said one more question, and now I lied because I'm going to jump in and ask ask another one. Okay. Um, but you mentioned successful farms. You will go and work on a successful farm. How do you? How would you identify that? Because I think that's so important. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, and I find this especially with internships. You know, there's a lot of farms out there that are really struggling, and you can go and work on a farm that's that's struggling and and doesn't doesn't have the weed control, doesn't have the irrigation, doesn't have the, um, the, I mean, the basic functioning systems. Um, and how do you, how do you know, how do you identify yeah. those successful operations? Well, um, I guess part of it is, are they, uh, you know, have they been in business for a while and are they apparently making a living at it? You know, what's the farmstead look like? Uh, you know, the, the, is, are things in good repair? You know, the, the line of equipment is, you know, are things working? Are they selling? I mean, do they, they have plenty of customers that wherever they're, they're selling. I mean, you have to, it's hard to, without doing a little checking out, I guess, 
but I, you know, I think that's what you would you would look for. Um, I mean, there are a lot of farms that may one day be successful, but if you're if they're in their third or fourth year, they probably are struggling. It's not it's not that easy to really get that momentum and get going. But you know, still, you can learn a lot by I think by helping out a farm maybe at that stage. But you can really learn a lot more by going to a farm that's been in business for fifteen or twenty years. Really, kind of seeing what success looks like. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. that would be um, no, that's what I think. Great. All right. Well, Steve, I've I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's great. You know, uh, I'm very excited by the things you're doing, too. You're really getting the word out. And anything like this that can help other people uh, make their farms work better and be more successful, you know, just talking with you always gives me insight into what I'm doing here. It really helps me solidify some of my ideas and some of my vision too. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, Listeners, if you don't already know, you can find links to the things we mentioned. I'm going to comb through this episode um, when I I do my editing work, cleaning stuff up a little bit and find all of the things that we've mentioned because there's been quite a few resources that have come up, quite a few different pieces of equipment. We'll try to get links to all of that stuff on the farmer to farmer podcast.com website. You can go on there and and search for Pincus. That's P-I-N-C-U-S. And that should take you right to the show notes for this episode. Steve, thank you again so much for generously sharing your time and your expertise with us today. It's been great. Glad to do it. I think it's just so cool that I get to talk to farmers about their farms and the perspectives they bring to the to to their farms and to the world in general. Really, what a privilege. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. So wrapping things up here again, you can find links from the show and more at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Just search for Pincus. That's P-I-N-C-U-S. I've even got a video of an FMC root harvester there. If you're not already listening to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice, I encourage you to subscribe to get the new episodes just as soon as they're released. And please take the time to leave a rating or review on iTunes it really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches. You can also leave comments for us on the show notes page of each episode. I'd love to know what you think. If you like what you hear, think about signing up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork. Um, And you know, one more thing, if you hung on this long, I'd really like to know what questions you, my listeners have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on the farmer to farmer podcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know. And I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your questions to use on air, I'll even send you a farmer to farmer podcast mug. By the way, you can use that same contact page or again, my Facebook page, whatever works for you to let us know who you'd like to hear from. Are there great farmers in your neighborhood? I know a lot of great farmers, but I know I'm sure that I don't know all of the great farmers. Okay. Um, All right. And with that, that's a wrap. Thank you very much. Have a great week.